Hey everyone, Vicky McLeod here. Welcome back to the podcast. This time around, I have Cohen Porter. We talk about how his life and training has changed since moving to Iceland, his love of competing and the intricacies of being an international athlete in CrossFit, as well as a quick foray into absurdist philosophy. So let's get to it. Welcome to the Europe is Coming podcast, taking you inside the minds of Europe's best CrossFit athletes and the people behind them. Today I'm talking to six times CrossFit game veteran, Carm Porter, who moved to Iceland in January to train at CrossFit Reykjavik with Annie, Tolla and Lauren. They've just finished 12th in the world in the team and 4th in Europe in the recent quarterfinals. Congratulations. Welcome to the Europe is Coming podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Um, moving to Iceland was quite a big decision, going from the summer of Sydney to the winter of Iceland. How have you been coping? So funnily enough, I think it was probably not as big of a decision as uh, maybe for other people. I it was The opportunity came at the very perfect time for me to do something like that. And in many ways, it kind of answered a lot of questions that I was facing back home about what I was going to do this season, goals moving forward, um, and some structure provided that. In terms of the adjustment, though, it was ongoing. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I was anywhere near prepared for spending an extended period of time in somewhere that is so heavily impacted by weather. Um, this is definitely the quietest place I've ever spent a long period of time. I think I did a month in the Cook Islands, which is where my dad's family's from uh, in 2014. Uh, ironically, just before the 2014 regionals, which was when I qualified for the games the first time. And I genuinely believe part of what got me to the games was the fact that I'd just spent a month somewhere where there was nothing else to do except train. Um, and that's kind of what it's like here. It's very much um, Iceland's beautiful and Iceland as a holiday destination is phenomenal. My best mate, he's here at the moment and he just did a week driving around the outside of Iceland. He's heli skiing at the moment. So there's Ooh. some amazing things that you can do here, but we just don't really have the, haven't really had the time to do a hell of a lot of exploring. Haven't really had a, a lot of time to, because everything's so far away. So you kind of mm. need a few days and just the way that training and stuff is. So it, it, it very much is just train, eat, recover, read, study, train, eat, recover, read, study, try to turn it into that. So that's been a huge adjustment. But I don't, and it's been challenging, but I don't necessarily, it's, it's challenging in, in different ways and it's been an enjoyable process to kind of adapt to. So have you noticed any cultural differences between li- living with I- in the Icelandic area and Australia? I mean, apart from the weather, which is obviously a huge impact on everything, mm. what's it been like get- fitting in there? Yeah, I think culturally it is quite different. I think particularly compared to somewhere like Sydney. Sydney is a very eclectic, um, liberal, open-minded city colorful city full of and like all my friends are such characters back home as well I think everyone here is quite reserved and quite kind of um well-mannered and it's it's been it's honestly been hard to kind of I've found it quite challenging to really meet people and uh, get to know a lot of people outside of our training circle just because we are so limited for time and things that would be like it would be normal in Australia to just kind of go out, go to a bar, meet up with friends, then you might bump into another group of people and you start chatting to them. And if you kind of, there's that fine line between being the mysterious stranger at a bar on their own and being the weird guy sitting in the corner at the bar every weekend on his own and having a meal. <laughs> and so I feel like I flirt that line very, very dangerously. So, I don't, yeah, I haven't sort of really got to know too many people. I love the crew in our team and I've got to know all of them and in, in our extended training camp and I've got to know all of them really well and it's been a privilege to do so. Um, but, yeah, I guess outside of that, like I, we just kind of chat amongst ourselves and we'll go out for dinner with the team every now and again. But, yeah, I spend a lot of time in these four walls here in the room. So, 
I think that the biggest cultural difference is just that everyone's really friendly when you speak to them, but people aren't going to just come up to you and start a conversation. And I think we're quite reserved and uh, like that stoic kind of more reserved culture. And that's certainly not the same as sort of Sydney, which is a lot more, I, I would find flamboyant. And even other places in Europe I've been to, and particularly the US, like the US, man, people will strike up a conversation with you there and end up inviting you back to their home. And I mean, I, the US has its folks, but for the most part, the people I've met there are extremely friendly. So that's something cool. And even when I went to London for a few days, that was really nice to just kind of be around, I think, people that are culturally quite similar. But at the same time, it's been good. It's certainly slowed me down a lot being here, which is probably not a bad thing. Have you lived in any other European cities? Is this your first long-term Europe city, European city? Yeah, my first long-term. I've spent a fair bit of time in Europe traveling around, but this is definitely the longest I've spent in any one place in Europe. The only other place I've spent an extended period of time in one place in, in outside of Australia was New York. Oh, well, it's a cool place to live. Yeah. I, How I, are I mean, you? Chalk and cheese between yeah, uh, total. New York. Total like sensory overload compared mm. to not much sunlight. I mean, like that's one of the real famous things about Iceland is that they have a pretty long winter of very little light. Does yep. that affect? Does that affect you in any in any particular way? Massively. I know, yeah. yeah, like I think the last two days we've had sunshine, uh, and it has been really nice to just to sit outside in the sun. And I think it's one of those things that I've taken for granted, even just being able to go outside. Like in Australia, if it's 15 degrees, it's too cold. You don't go outside. You rug up and stay (laughs) inside. It's like, oh, this is ridiculous. It's eight degrees and sunny yesterday. And I was had my shirt sleeve rolled up, sitting out there, having my coffee in the sun, tucked behind a wall. So, yeah, that's... It's a real treat when it does come out. It's given me a real appreciation for when it is uh, sunny and just the impact that has. And even just, I don't know, I feel better. When I first came here, we were getting up and it was still dark and it was still dark when we got to the gym. And then we'd train and then we'd have a little break during the day, but it would be freezing cold, probably snowy or rainy. And then we'd finish training. It would already almost be getting dark. So you were kind of living this this hermit life where we're in the gym all day and then when you're outside, it's just dark. You don't want to go and do anything, travel around and that. So that was having a huge impact, I think, mentally. I just found it so my thoughts just matched the weather. I was just sitting in my room in the dark when I had any downtime and I just hated it. And hmm. then as the days are getting longer now, almost <laughs> now the sun's up at 5 a.m. and it doesn't go down until almost 10 p.m., it's, um, it certainly is much more inviting to go out and do things and to get out of the room. And I've found that just my general disposition is so much better now with that. Even, you know, it's rainy today, but it's still going to be light out for quite some time. So I'll sort of go out and get some food and, I don't know. Just, it just I don't even know how to describe it. Except I just feel better when it's sunny. <laughs> the the structure that you're talking about with the training with your team. I mean, is that something that you're not used to? Is it something that you didn't have when you were in Australia? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've never trained consistent times and consistent hours stuck to a program for more than a short period of time with a group of athletes or with a coach watching me it's always kind of been very haphazard um especially i, I like to travel and i've always well, obviously without, except for covid period mm. so when you're tra- training on the road it's very difficult I actually um and i've tried train with people as much as possible back home there's like most recently a group of three guys at crossfit play and they're awesome, great dudes, and it's such a fun environment to train with them, but their goals and priorities are just so different to that of an elite athlete. They are coaches and they have businesses and they work elsewhere. They come in and they get their training done, but it's very, very, it's lower down on the priority list than I think it needs to be to be competitive these days. And that was kind of the crossroads I was at coming into this season when I was at home. It was trying to figure out how I would 
create a create the training environment i believed i needed to be competitive this year as an individual so last year i just missed the games twice with the semi-finals and then the last chance qualifier um and it was really because training was not my priority and I needed to, and that was as much, it's my own fault, but it was just the environment that I was in. I wasn't in the right environment for me to be focused on training. And I was, I had no idea how the hell I was going to create that in Sydney um, to the point where it was almost, it was a decision of almost, will I continue competing? Will I, I thought that I could kind of compete just, for fun and like do it in a balanced way, but I'm too competitive. I've never done this for fun. I've never competed in, I've always been doing this to try and be good, try and be the best. And so it was a, it was a question. It wasn't a question of would I just step back from competing a little bit or just do it for different goals. For me, I think I would have to give it up. I was thinking I would have to give it up altogether or go all in on it. And then, yeah, that was the question for me was how could I go all in on this in the environment I was in in Australia? It would very much have had to be on my own, which would have meant that I would have to implement all these different kind of uh, structures that I'm experiencing now. Now, the good thing about this is I've got the guidance of not only Yami who coaches us, but all the other athletes who've all trained in training environments where they've been with other athletes for, for years, where they've followed structure with their nutrition, with their supplementation, with their sleep, with their recovery. It's all these things that I'll kind of eat well for two days and then not eat in the Like, I mean, I'm blown away by how much better I feel training just by eating more and eating more regularly and little things like that, which I just wouldn't do on my own at home um, and without that kind of hands-on uh, guidance and also it's the accountability I can't just go well I'm going to train today when I feel like it or I don't feel like training today so I'll do a little bit extra tomorrow because it's like well no the team's training at this time so you'll train at this time we get a little bit of flexibility in some of our days when it comes to some of the sessions we do on our own which is great because I think that helps too but just having that accountability having those eyes on you know things like uh, when I went to London and when we finished the semifinals, we'll have some time off, but I'll have my whoop on. So that will mean mm. that my sleep is being tracked. So I can't just go out and not sleep for three days and get on the piss and have a 2% recovery. <laughs> and, you know, there are just these, these little pieces, these little things that provide a sense of accountability and structure that really have helped me create the habits myself and create habits that now I would feel comfortable taking away if I was say to go back to Australia and, you know, I mean, I don't know what my goals are for next season, but um, just yet. But if my goals were, if that involved being back in Australia or being somewhere else in the world, like and setting up, you know, training without these people around me all the time, I feel that now, and particularly at the end of the season, I'll have, ha- I'll have developed that ability and I know now what it feels like to be a professional athlete. I know now what goes into that top level rather than my haphazard winging it approach, which has worked sometimes, but then mm. it doesn't other. And that's that inconsistency in performance has always been something that's um, that I've battled with and learning that that's probably heavily influenced by a lot of things outside of my training itself has been a really cool part of this process. So has it been because um, you haven't made it a priority or is it because of other life expect- other, other life getting in the way or why didn't you have the chance to really implement these things before this? I think there's probably a few answers to that. I think first of all, um, I just... I like lots of things. I enjoy having a social life. I enjoy study. I like studying the stuff that I'm studying. I enjoy travel. I enjoy um, surfing. I enjoy going out for a nice meal. I enjoy waking up when I want to wake up. These are all these (laughs) things that have kind of contributed. I enjoy, you know, trying to make money and having businesses and trying my hand at new businesses and new ventures and new projects and things like that. So it's certainly not just because I wanted to just, I it was too having fun. It's just, there's been a variety of other things that have pushed and pulled me in different directions over the years, which have taken my focus away from just being an athlete 
that I don't think exist in this, that no longer are an issue in, in this current environment. Um, and I think as well, there was probably an element as well of like fear and self-doubt that went into that, where it was always nice to have a backup plan, nice to have other things to put my attention into and to take my focus away for tra- from training because then if it didn't, like, you know, if I didn't, if I wasn't successful, I didn't make the games that year or whatever it was, I, um, you know, it was like, oh, it's all right. I'm studying or whatever it was as well. And, I mean, that was another big one. The two years that I've missed it, I've made the games in 2014 and I missed out in 17 and 20. And coincidentally, those two years are the only two years I've been at university full-time. The other times I've, I've sort of managed part-time or very, very low workloads around that. But even just having that split attention between training and uh, study seems to have had an impact uh, on my performance overall. Um, and then I think as well, yeah, like environment and just I didn't uh, not having the guidance or maybe maybe the guidance was there, but maybe I just wasn't ready to commit to that. Maybe I just needed to mature to a point where I was willing to I want to say not not listen because I've always been fine listening to other people, but where I was willing to actually implement the stuff that I struggle with because the stuff I've never struggled with training hard. I've never struggled with pushing myself in the gym. I've never struggled with high, doing high volume or anything like that. Like I love that. I love to train and I love to push myself. What I have struggled with is eating consistently is prioritizing habits that improve my performance outside of the gym is not how is having, you know, one or two beers as opposed to six or seven. And it's those little things. Now it's trying to get a consistent amount of sleep and things like that. And I think that that just requires a level of maturing as well. Um, that yeah, maybe I didn't have prior to this season, prior to this year. How exciting that we're going to see a new, a, a brand new version of Calm Porter then this season. Because yeah. that's like what, how exciting it is to think uh, how far you could go now you've got these habits under yeah. wraps. Yeah, I'm pumped. I am. Um... Yeah, I, yeah. There's like little things that I still need to work on. Like from a physical perspective, I'm by no means physically exceptional, but I just feel like I'm in such a cool environment to really test. Yeah, what I'm capable of as, as an athlete, and I'm really excited. You know, whether it's uh, probably you know, realistically with how old I am, there's probably I've got maybe another year after this um, as well that I want to do this hundred percent. And so, yeah, in 18, the next, over the next 18 months, I'm really excited to watch that evolution and to be able to then hopefully walk away from this sport, knowing that I did give everything I had at some point in time. How are you finding training in a team? Do you, are you enjoying the pressure it puts on you to contribute rather than just working as an individual? I mean, I grew up playing team sports. I played rugby for very many years, yeah, various levels. So I'm super used to team sport. Uh, I feel I'm a lot more self-critical in a team environment just because of that, because of the way that there is, so there there is an expectation, there is expectation, no, there's not expectation. There is expectation. But it's not the contributing factor. Jeez, I went around in circles then. <laughs> you, <did. laughs> you you need to, you are accountable to these other people, and that's where also the decisions I'm making outside of the gym are more important to me now because I am accountable to these people, and because I don't want to let them down. The standard mm. is so fucking high as well that like, I mean, you know, we walked into this and Annie being. Annie, she's the benchmark, and if that's the fucking benchmark, you've got to do everything you can to try and keep up. Um, and so that's cool. Like that is inspiring and that provides a really good environment, but yeah, it certainly adds a different element of stress that doesn't exist in individual competition, but I don't think it's negative. I don't think it's an inherently negative stress. I think you can make it negative. And I think I'm prone to doing that when I do become more self-critical, but I also believe that it is a very positive amount of pressure and type of pressure you're 
really well known for speaking very honestly about your own experiences with eating disorders when you were a teenager, then a diagnosis of bipolar, then another diagnosis of ADHD and OCD. I wondered, um, given this stereotype of the Australian man, which is a big drinker and a not a big talker, how you felt when you started to talk more openly about your struggles with this? So, yeah, I'll just quickly clarify. It was a misdiagnosis with bipolar, which was then turned into a diagnosis of ADHD and anxiety, which encompasses OCD. Just, mm. um, so, yeah, I, I mean, well, I am a big drinker. That certainly fits the Australian <laughs> stereotype. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, I grew up with... Uh, my dad was very open with his own emotions and spoke very, was just, and it was very like it, emotionality was never vilified in our household, which I think was a very positive thing. And mm. I think what that allowed has allowed me to do is to never, when I was young, I used to feel really odd and different and like there was something wrong with me for being really, cause I was quite like for being an emotional kid. But it was weird because it was like, and then as I got older, I realized that, no, I wasn't necessarily more emotional than other people. I was just emotion, more emotionally aware. So I was just more aware mm. of what I was feeling and felt okay expressing that because that was something that was always encouraged um, by my parents, which is a really cool thing about, you know, the environment that I did grow up in. And so I think I had this kind of uh, masculine role model in my dad that was like dad played sports, he was into his rugby, you know, he was he was a like a normal bloke, but he still was quite comfortable being emotional. And I just found I was always drawn to masculine figures that did do that because I just felt that like I, I was so aware of my emotions and I was so comfortable, well, not comfortable because I fucking hate being emotional sometimes. I really hate it. It's, it's, it's a fucking battle. But I was always super aware of them. And I guess the effect I... <sighs> I've never, like I have, and I know I'm sure people talk shit about me behind my back. I'm not ignorant to think that they don't, but I've never copped too much backlash from speaking about my emotions because I think men particularly are so starved for a platform and an mm -hmm. opportunity to do that themselves. So I think that in speaking about, you know, emotion, mental health and the things that go on in your head and that sort of stuff, what it does is it, it's it's normalizing and I think societally we're so fucking desperate for people to to speak about these things that we all experience and we all go through and maybe we don't yet feel comfortable expressing or we don't have the words to express yet. So then having someone do that, even if it, you know, the initial pushback might be what a fucking idiot, but like that's probably indicative of that person struggling with something themselves. So I don't know, like, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I, I've never felt, I never felt like I was like this overtly manly masculine dude anyway. Like I did drama. I liked creative writing. I did all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I played rugby and, you know, liked chasing chicks and shit like that. Like I, I did these masculine things, but I didn't really give a fuck what, like I've always wanted to fit in, but like I just never found myself. Like I, I just knew I wasn't a fucking blokey bloke that chat, like, you know, like building things. And, you know, my mates, it's an ongoing joke with my mates how useless I am with a set of tools and all this stuff. And I don't know, that certainly has never stopped me being able to pursue the things that I'm passionate about and all that sort of stuff. So I don't know, I think I've always had a different, perception of what the archetypal man should be and i embody what i believe that to be as best i can i still don't do, still not perfect but i don't think yeah i i think that kind of i think there's a time and place for stoicism and being uh you know emotionally neutral or being able to mm. suppress your emotions so to speak but I think the best way to do that and to be able to manage your emotions is to be aware of them and acknowledge them. And part of that for me is just speaking about them. So, yeah, I don't know. It just, I, well, I do know. I don't feel that, yeah, I feel like the, the modern bloke, 
and the modern Australian man is changing. I, will, I also come from Sydney. Probably very different if I lived in one of the outback towns in Australia. And I've got mates that live in smaller towns. That's town. true. I know that they, well, we've had open conversations about they're like, fuck, you know, uh, how my mentality and talking about your feelings and all in your mental health and stuff, you don't do that where they're from because you get told to shut up. And I'm like, well, I'm not from there. So I experienced <laughs> that Sydney, as I said, is a very liberal city, a very free-thinking, open-minded city. So that's sounds Sounds like you had a great role model in your dad as well. Yeah, and mum too. Like both of mm. them modeled that for us really, really well as kids. So once you got these diagnoses do you think that it actually helped you to know what what um, you were dealing with because a lot okay. of people these days are seeking and um, like feel that it might be neurodivergent in some way so they're actually actively seeking to find out you know they have ADHD or autism or or something and I wondered if it if you found that actually knowing actually having a, a name to put to the the feeling helped you yeah. Yeah, it's a pheno- it's been a phenomenally beneficial thing for me, particularly going from being by di- misdiagnosed bipolar to correctly diagnosed with ADHD and anxiety. Mm. The reason being is it's like I think this came up in a podcast last week is like almost this exact question, but it was framed more so in did I think it was a bad thing to have a diagnosis? And I don't. I, I really don't. I think if the diagnosis is correct and it provides a framework through which you can actively work on whatever it is that you're trying to kind of work on, that is epic. What I don't like is the, there's so much content out there. I mean, there's so much fucking content out there about everything, full stop. (laughs) That's just a blanket statement that applies to anything in the world. But there's so much content out there around various mental health issues. And I think if you see these symptoms as somehow uh like stagnant or like kind of uh they box you in then i think that's really negative but if you also or if you look at them and you take a diagnosis like adhd for example is probably one of the most misunderstood uh you know, and, or any kind of neurodivergency like autism as well, ADHD, all that stuff is so wildly misunderstood. So when you look at ADHD, you think of the naughty kid in a classroom that can't sit, sit still. That's such a small part of it and it's such a small part of the frustration. Like focus, for example, inability to focus is one small criteria from the entire spectrum of ADHD symptoms. And sure, that can that can be something that Im- impacts people, but there's the impulsivity side of it all as well. That's certainly something that I wrestle with. There's the hyperactivity. Sure, that's another thing. But then there's also like the emotional regulation and emotional dysregulation that occurs with any kind of neurodivergence. And being able to work on that, I never would have gone down the path of even looking into things like, say, DBT or you know, emotional regulation skills and training had I not have known that that was some, like symptomatic of ADHD, I would have just been like, oh, this is fucking annoying, but it is what it is. So I look at a diagnosis and I look at a good, a correct diagnosis as basically the framework, you know, to get better. Same way that if you want to get better at squatting, you're not just going to do a bunch of exercises. You know, your legs want to get better, but you, you, you realize you've got to follow a squat program. So you find a program that's specifically aimed at even better is you have someone look at your squatting and go, this mm. is what you need to do to improve it. And you follow a structured framework that's set out to improve that, your leg develop, like your leg strength. If you can f- get a diagnosis, that's the framework. That, that can then lead to finding framework to improve the areas and the aspects of that that you want to. A lot of these things, <clears throat> particularly neurodivergent um, mental health issues, they're not curable, but they're certainly things that you can learn to manage. You can learn to manage with systems and processes. And that's when I look at studying, for example. Had I not have been diagnosed with ADHD, <clears throat> I'd have never figured out how to put together a system for when I need to write an essay for when I need to study, for when I need to kind of read. And, you know, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have looked, I wouldn't have looked into strategies. I would have just tried to do what everyone else is doing and never got any further ahead. So having not had those diagnoses, I never would have taken the time to 
to actually improve the shit that I want to improve about those those diagnoses. So but I think what, it's important. What? I think I also think the counteract the counter to that. Sorry to cut you off. Um, no. Is just one more point on this is that I think there is a huge issue with overdiagnosis and the overpathologizing mm. of what is just can just be personality and can all the overpathologizing of just like simple behavioral uh, issues. And I think that's where you see a lot of misdiagnosis of ADHD in kids. And it's why people are like, oh, you know, you grow out of ADHD. I was like, well, you kind of can't grow out of ADHD. It's a neurological like difference in your brain. That's something that's there. You can work on it. You can improve the symptoms. But theoretically, I mean, some of these growing out, I think, is more people finding jobs and lifestyles that suit their ADHD. But in terms of actually just completely growing out of the disorder, it seems, well, I mean, there's there's varying different perspectives on this, but I tend to side with the idea that it's not possible. And so what that means is I believe there's a massive amount of misdiagnosis of it, say, in, in, in kids. And with that, I think you can look at it as more of a people, people are diagnosing, and this covers everything from depression to anxiety. People are diagnosing behavioral issues with mental illness. And that's where we run the risk of, first of all, it changes the nature of how these mental illnesses are viewed. It's like if someone has a behavioral issue, treat that issue like look at improving their kind of choices and their lifestyle and their environment and all these sorts of things to make better decisions or improving their just general disposition rather than treating it as if they've got a genuine mental illness because yeah it it dissipates the access to care the type of care and also kind of contributes to i believe the stigma around conversations in mental health what are your knowing um that you have strategies in place for coping with issues that might arise when you're studying or do you have things that you have to put in place for when you're competing yeah yeah i know what i have to do i know what i'm like around competition (laughs) so i know how i'm going to be leading into a competition i know how i'm going to be during i know how to process a bad event i know how to fuel my like how to like you know use a good event to kind of move myself forward and those are all really beneficial things um are you looking for specific strategies or is it just like a general question yeah if you've got an if you've got advice for other people that do have adhd and all kind of anxiety anxiety disorders how they manage i think anxiety is probably a a bigger one i think adhd is probably less is phenomenally less common than anxiety i think we all and the cool thing about i mean the cool thing about not the cool thing the interesting thing about all mental uh, health issues is they exist on a spectrum so you can have someone that feels that they are impacted by the symptoms of generalized anxiety disorder at a genuine at a for a period of time when it comes to certain things doesn't mean they have generalized anxiety disorder Mm. because part of that is across multiple domains and for an extended period of time you have to present these symptoms um, and it has to have a negative impact on your life as a whole for an extended period of time. So, but, but you can experience these symptoms in certain situations and for shorter periods of time. So being able to kind of work on them and, and, and find strategies that work for you is, is something that everyone can do. And that's what I mean when I say, which I say quite often, everyone's impacted by mental health. We all experience the sim- sim- some of these symptoms like to varying degrees of severity at different periods in time, particularly anxiety when it comes to performance, when it comes to competing. And that's something that I'm asked about more so than anything else, I think, is, is that how do you manage uh, the nerves and the performance anxiety? And there's kind of two really big ones for me. The first is I just know that it's a part of my process. I just know that in the lead up to a competition, I am going to be a little bit extra anxious. I am going to be nervous and that that nerves and anxiety are a feeling that can only impact my performance if I let it because they don't actually impact my preparation. If I've not, there is nothing about the feeling of anxiety or nerve, nervousness that makes me any less fit. So what do I do in the lead up? Well, I try to put myself in situations and environments that are going to minimize extra anxiety on top of that. 
I'm going to minimize the cognitive load I have to take uh, around a competition. So by that, I mean, let's not have to make a bunch of really massive decisions. Let's not try to have to focus on other things and put any kind of anything that's going to take mental energy away from being able to just kind of sit with the nervousness and the anxiety because I know that that is going to have a cognitive cost and then kind of just accept that. And it's a challenge to accept that that's a part of it, but I'm just so used to it. And the people around me when I'm getting ready for a competition are so used to it as well. So they know that, you know, I might have an average training session and then I'm going to want to complain about how shit it was and how I'm so terrible and they're just going to be like this, let me get it out there and then I'll just kind of sit that and then I just go back about my day. So having people that can kind of be there as well and that are, that are understanding of that part of your process, if you are someone that is especially impacted by um, competition anxiety and nerves, having an environment that allows you to be anxious, that allows you to be nervous is going to really help you to just get good at sitting with those feelings. I think sometimes people are so, people are very, we're very solution focused, particularly guys. So it's like, if you see someone that's like stressing out, you want to make them not stressed. You want to tell them, don't be anxious, don't be mm. nervous. So like, here's some solutions to those feelings and here's some alternative ways of looking at that. And here's some perspective. Hey, it could be worse. Like these are all things that make sense. But what you're going to probably do is just add to the anxiety there. If someone is feeling anxious around a competition, if you are feeling anxious around a competition, feel anxious. Don't beat yourself up about it. Understand that that is a normal physiological response to doing something that is of value to you, to putting yourself out there, to putting yourself in a competitive situation. And if you're someone that's trying to support someone that's feeling anxious as they're leading into a competition, let them be anxious. Help them on that path. Don't try to fix them or stop them being anxious because when they can't, you won't be able to because that's that's where I get. I, I know that I will just be nervous. Then try, being told that you need to stop and being told that you need to not do that is um, it's just going to be more frustrating and add to that anxiety. The second thing is I will, in the actual heat of the moment, so when I'm going to compete or when I'm, you know, uh, in the warm-up area, on the start line. No, the start line's pretty fine. I just kind of am zoned in by then. But in the warm-up area, let's say, or going to the competition, part of the part of what you get anxious about is all the different outcomes. You know, if I do, if this happens, what will this mean? If this happens, what will happen? Like, uh, what will I think? What will other people think? There are all these different things that I get anxious about specifically. So I'll try to think of two to three anchors. So an anchor for me is just something I can tell myself as like a bit of surface level reassurance that if the worst case scenario were to happen, it's going to be okay because, and these can be a variety of different things. One can be something called, which I call reframing the outcome. And so what I mean by that is I'll think of the worst case scenarios and I'll be, well, Try they just come to me. I don't have to do much thinking. <laughs> and so I'll think of those worst case scenarios and I'll go, right, what is a way that I can reframe that so it's not a negative? Okay, you embarrass yourself in front of this room full of people. Uh, you fail your last rep and everyone overtakes you and you don't make the games, whatever it is. It's like, okay, uh, it's just off the top of my head, one that I would use for that, that fear of failure or fear of embarrassment, let's call it. Um, is that through that I will feel shit for a period of time and I will have to sit with those negative feelings and process them and then still choose to move forward with my life, which I've done every time this has happened prior to, and that ha will build character. So through failure, I'll build character. So I'll still experience some kind of positive growth, even if I suck <laughs> at this. Will I, I could potentially learn something about myself as an athlete, which as you get closer to the end of your career, as you get a little bit older, uh, you don't want to be learning too many more lessons. It's kind of more like, fuck, I should know this by now. <laughs> but like, that's another part of the process, especially for young athletes and get a lot of young athletes that talk about the nerves and the um, anxiety you got years ahead of you make mistakes that's you can look at failure as like making mistakes is learning it's all an opportunity and that's so cliche but until you fucking failed spectacularly which i have plenty of times as an athlete 
you 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 give that so much more negative value than it needs. Once you've failed a bunch of times spectacularly in front of a big crowd of people, um, then you get humbled very quick and you learn that you either have to figure out how to move forward with that. You learn to pick apart, to pick out the positives from those experiences, to use them as fuel, and they can then become those anchors. Uh, another really good anchor as well is um, to kind of look at, uh, reframing the experience, um, is, is, to, is to use past experiences. Is so even if, it, if I don't want to go through the whole rigmarole of actually coming up with a positive way that something can be skewed because sometimes that's just shit and you don't want to do that. Like sometimes it's, that's not the thing that's going to stick to mind. It's like I'll just tell myself what's the worst thing that you're afraid of and if that happens, is there a time that something similar has happened before? The answer is always yes. I haven't been doing this for as long as I have. Cool. You did that. That happened and you got past it. If that happens again, you'll get past it. Every single person I've spoken to about doing this interview has been so excited that I'm going to talk to you because you have a really magnetic and uh, effect on on spectators. And I think there's so much you have so much charisma and um, show so much joy when you're competing. Um, I just wondered if the joy of the competing outweighs all the feelings of the anxiety before because it just like I, I was watching you. Um, at Waterpalooza, for example, you look like you're having an absolute blast. Like, focus on the fun of being on the floor to get over. Sorry, you're breaking up a little bit. Just... Yeah, you stopped too. Oh, there's that as well. Fuck yeah, there's that as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I, I love competing. And that's not always been the case. That very much changed for me. I want to say... Around 2017, when I didn't make the games for the first time, and I just found myself out of contention at a point in the weekend where I knew it was not going to get back, and I just like started to soak in just what it was like to be on the competition floor. And it's funny because up until then, I wouldn't do many competitions outside of the game season because it was it wasn't a pleasant experience for me because of the anxiety. Um, and so I would do, if it was, it would just be like fun competitions. It would never be anything with anything at stake because that was stressful. <laughs> and I just, I didn't like the anxiety. I didn't know how to deal with it effectively like I do now. And I just looked for any excuse to not have to compete outside of it. If I did, I would almost over sell that I was having a good time, even though I wasn't at all. But, yeah, I fucking love it. Like, are you serious? I exercise quickly. That's my job. And people pay to fucking watch. <laughs> so weird. How First of all, how fucking long will I be able to do that is, is see how the old joints hold up after another season of CrossFit Games training. But, yeah, I don't know. I Yeah, I do. I love it. I love the interaction with the fans. I love the fact that, I don't know, like, there's an element of performance to all of this and it's and it's enjoyable. I think if you don't fucking Exactly. Yeah, if you don't enjoy this and if you aren't, I don't know, like there's there's so many levels to why I enjoy it. And I think ultimately it's a for, it's a creative express it's a form of self-expression. And it's like I work fucking hard, even though I may not weigh and measure have not weighed and measured my food and stuck to a up a bedtime and enjoyed a few beers too many for too many times over the course of my athletic career, like talking about all that structure and stuff I had before. When I'm on the competition floor, when I am training, when I'm putting in work, I fucking put in work. And that's probably the one thing I've always disliked was when people would be like, oh, you just, I've been told I'm naturally talented. You're naturally talented. And, uh, you know, it's almost like a degree of like, you get lucky, not get lucky, but like people diminish the amount of work that goes into the actual training I've done over the mm. years. I've been an athlete, and you don't have to spend a much time training with me to see that. You know, we go fucking hard when we actually train. And when I'm on the competition floor, that's when I get to express that. That's when I get to kind of put that into fruition. Does it always go well? No. But at the same time, fuck, if you can't, I mean, I think that's another Australian thing. If you can't laugh at yourself, I think in Australia, you don't get very far because that kind of fucking 
let's call it piss take culture is rife mm-hmm. everyone like you grow up with everyone's fucking at each other like the more someone teases you the more they like you and it's done in kind of a friendly way it's 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 funny there's a great i saw a tiktok skit about it where it's like a guy and he's an aussie guy i actually know the guy quite well the guy I played rugby with and he's saying, you know, like it's guys with their friends, and he's like, you know, I fucking, you know, just ripping out, you fucking loser. Why the fuck did you do that? You so fucking stupid, like teasing the guy. And then as soon as the guy walks away, he turns his friends like, ah, oh, he's such a top bloke, he's such a legend. That's very indicative of Australian culture. It's very much like you take the piss out of your mates, but then you fucking die for them. Like you would do anything mm. for them. And that's exactly how I am with my mates and how they've always been with me. I mean, that keeps you humble as well. You never get too big for your boots in Australia or you get fucking chopped down pretty quickly. But um, I think that then as well, like that helps me reframe the seriousness of it all. And I think that was something that I always found almost off-putting when I first started CrossFit. It seems so uptight, so serious and so like, you know, every, you had to do, it was all very proper, very kind of militant and God-fearing and I'm taking nothing away from those, the military or people that are of faith, but I'm me and I'm certainly, like you said, I don't fit the role, I don't necessarily fit the mould of the archetypal masculine man. So with mm. that, Jesus, I had to figure out how to have a bit of fun while I was competing or I would have gone insane early on and, yeah, and I did to an extent, but like I said, then from then on out, mate, I enjoy it. I soak it in. If there's people in the crowd, like we were actually just talking about this within our group yesterday, um, uh, no, Monday after a workout, like which of us prefer to just be in our own environments in the gym competing there or training versus in front of a crowd. And then I'm, the cat was just like, yeah, like you are definitely in front of a crowd. I was like, fucking oath. I'm a... 10 levels above in front of people and i'd fucking love it i think showman actually is a good as she should put that on your bio <laughs> take athlete away <laughs> yeah showman yeah. Show, fit showman yeah. no i think it is. Um, there is there is an element of performance i mean my parents were theater actors i spent years <laughs> mm. surrounded by actors and the theater and all that sort of stuff so i think performance is just something that's part of who i am and this is how i choose to do it as an athlete you're currently studying for um a psychology degree how far along are you two years down and i am currently looking at putting that on the back burner until i finish competing i really like we sort of spoke about before i love what i study i enjoy it or at least doing a very reduced workload which is what i'm on at the moment the reason Mm -hmm. being i just feel I'm coming to the end of my career. Had I been younger and maybe not had to put in as much uh, time and effort into things outside of the gym as I do to stay competitive, I might have been able to juggle it a little bit better. But study will always be there. Uh, My athleticism and youthful joints will not. So uh, I say youthful joints with a a dry smile because they certainly don't feel youthful all the time. But, um, yeah, I... I don't know if I want to go all in on this. I want to go all in on this at Mm. least for a year. And so that's sure that started at the start of this year and I'm still kind of juggling a little bit of study on the side. But yeah, if I was going to do one more year, I think I would do it sans any other form of distraction and then finish off the last two years after that. So it's a four-year degree um, with honours and that's what you need to then start practising. And is that the would that be the future goal for you to b- become a practicing psychologist? I don't know. I, I think so. I think that's what I would love to do. That I love psychology. I love. Uh, I actually went back, put myself back a year last year to take a second major in philosophy, and I think I gravitate more towards being interested in philosophy than psychology. But um, I don't know what the fuck you do with this philosophy degree. <laughs> uh, <laughs> except tell people you have a philosophy degree. Um, but I. Yeah, I don't know. I think I'll see what what happens over the next 18 months. Like there's so many unknowns and unknowables and you never know what will happen over the next 18 months, what other opportunities might present themselves. Um, You know, like I said, uh, when we were talking beforehand, I have a background in journalism, which I studied at university when I was um, before CrossFit. And then I was working as a journalist when I started CrossFit. So you never know, like I might, 
go back into something down that avenue. Like I love to write and I love to read and research and study, particularly when it's not sort of like bound by time and subjects that you have to do. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Mm. I might do something in that in that area that sort of feels where I'm being more pulled to writing and stuff at the moment, which is really cool. But yeah, I, I don't know. I definitely would like to finish the degree, um, but what I'll do with it, I don't know. And going back to your point about philosophy and what you do with a philosophy degree, I think you enrich the world with a philosophy degree because it's hard to pinpoint what you would do as a career but I think anyone who's gone through that process mm. adds a lot to the people around them. Yeah so. I think well I try to I think it just provides a beautiful I think philosophy just provides such beautiful lenses to look at some of life's big I don't say problems mysteries or big topics and there's mm. just such beautiful works out there by various philosophers and deep thinkers on these topics that, you know, I think so many, I, I, I sometimes envy people that can float through life at a surface level and can just kind of take things as they are. And it's, it, would, it would be probably be a beautiful thing like, to not overthink everything, but I've come to know that I am an overthinker and in as such, having these different lenses and having these different people to explore what I overthink with in, in, in the philosophers of the past and present, even the people at uni that I have met and get to speak to and still speak to. Like I have a bunch of internet philosophy friends that I chat to all the time. It's wonderful. Um, and yeah, it's just, Oh man, it just adds depth to everything. And uh, I love it. I just, I feel, feel even if it doesn't even if my studying in philosophy doesn't enrich anyone else's life it certainly enriches mine i was just when you were talking before about the stoics i mean that the stoics are really uh, connected to crossfit and that kind of carry on keep going kind of philosophy but actually like the anti-stoic as well the anti it's like the idea of being emotional and being able to express your emotions i hadn't considered that before so like thank you for giving me that That's idea, all right. I think example. I don't think it's I wouldn't I wouldn't position that as anti-stoic I would almost position it as like a path to stoicism I think to express your emotions in a controlled and healthy manner allows you to channel to control them better and that would be more in line with the kind of teachings of the the, the classic stoics like your Marcus or Ellis mm. and all that and I, I mean, I love, I love, I think Stoicism is is such a wonderful sect of philosophy. It's certainly one of the in vogue sects of philosophy now. But my message to anyone who has found Stoicism, because I know a lot of people have, and there's some brilliant works of Stoicism out there, to explore philosophy broad, more broadly and to know that one of the beautiful things, like, like I would put Stoicism in the, in the, extremely broad category of existentialist philosophy and within existentialist philosophy there are so many fucking schools of thought so take what you can and will and want from stoicism but explore some of the others i fucking love absurdism and it's almost like <laughs> it's it's weird like it it get trends towards like a little bit dark at times and a little bit kind of like you know, meaninglessness is meaning and I, it, it, you can go down some rabbit holes, but that's, I feel so fucking at home when I read the work of the great absurdists and even like the nihilists and stuff. Give me an entry level absurdist to check uh, out. Go and look at entry level. I mean, Fred, not Nietzsche probably trends towards more, um, some of Nietzsche's stuff's pretty good, but I wouldn't be reading. I would read like when I say like, I, like these philosophers, a lot of the time I will read stuff that is other people have talked about them because their writing is so fucking convoluted. Nietzsche's pretty good, though. I love his stuff. Um, Albert Camus uh, and John Paul Sartre are great as well. If you want to go real dark, Emile Chiron. Um, but, yeah, I think they're kind of good. At, they're some of the cool absurdists. Camus, like The Stranger, is kind of is one that everyone knows uh, really, really well. Um and then uh, that uh, the myth the myth of Sisyphus as well, where they talk about you know oh, the, yeah. the, the old Sisyphus rolling the boulder up the hill, and um, there's a it's lot of life. great absurdist philosophers <laughs> that have taken that on and had a look. Well, some great absurdist philosophers that take that on and had a look at it as well. But 
Also, Jean Paul Sartre, um, didn't he write in camera? Yes, I haven't read. Uh, yes, Hel- yeah, yeah, yes. Hell is other. Hell is other people. Yeah, I haven't read that one though. It's, I read that. Oh, it's a good, it's a play. It's a ask your dad and oh, your mum. Maybe fantastic. they Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, there's so many good ones. Um, yeah, I. Yeah, I think even just like looking at absurd absurdism as a whole, and just looking at the various different things that people talk, like just talking about that sect rather than the the actual philosophers themselves, is is really cool. So applying it to life, yeah, yeah, is a, is, you, the, is the is in the, the skill. face of how weird this world is that we are in. Do we? Do you know when you're going to be? Uh, when when you're going to know which? semi-final are you guys I going believe to? tomorrow uh no no it's Thursday <gasps> I believe Friday oh uh. <laughs> yeah I'm um yeah I guess it doesn't really matter which one you go to I was just speaking mm. to Ollie Man's Bridge earlier from uh Strength mm. and Depth so they're all they're all uh ready for you guys he wouldn't tell me what the workouts were unfortunately. Uh, we are <laughs> I think we would love to go uh Amsterdam for a variety of reasons mm. uh, particularly because it's earlier um I am running out of days I am allowed to be in Europe so if we do with oh. the different visas so I got my I've finished 90 days and it's extended another 90 days which is easy to do as an Australian thankfully um but even with that I wanted to come back potentially after the games for a period of time and do some competitions so I'll need as many days banked up so if we have an earlier comp I can leave the EU for a little bit afterwards or leave the Schengen area for a little bit um and also I have to apply for a visa to get back to the States. So I came in and out of the US too many times last year on a tourist visa. And I used to have an O-1, which is a working visa. So basically I started getting flagged at the border and the guy at the border basically last time said, look, our system shows that you have work contacts here because you've had a work visa before. You've been coming in and out of the US for long periods of time. It looks like you could be working here and all it will take is you to get someone that's having a bad day and they'll just say denied entry. And then if you, once you're denied entry, once getting a visa there is a nightmare. I've seen, she saw a snotty post, something about a bunch of like athletes that are forced to leave. I think let's piss off a bunch of Americans. Now I think Americans are very ignorant to the way the rest of the world works and also to how fucking hard it is for everyone to get into their Mm-hmm. And when you kind of bring that up, the blanket response I get is like, well, so what? It's good that it's hard to get in here. And it's just a really fucking narrow-minded view of travel. And all the international athletes, we all have to jump through the hoops to get into America. We all have to make our way there at our own expense and do whatever is required for getting in with little to no support and help from CrossFit. So I think things like help making that process easier by giving people access to the semifinals that is going to work for that because I'm going to have to apply for a visa and I'm going to have to now apply because simply because I went to the country too many times last year, I'm not doing anything illegal. I'm not working there. We're, everything that I've done when I've competed is within the bounds of what's called the ESTA or the visa waiver. Uh, we travel mm. to the States. However, just because a guy one time when I was at uh, the border was like having a bad day and now I've got flagged every time that I go through and now if I don't now apply for a proper visa to go there, which is it's a, a whole fucking process in of itself, I then run the risk of getting turned away. And so I'm going to need time to do that. And I just, yeah, I don't know. I think that international athletes are kind of sometimes not forgotten about, but these kind of concerns of the international athletes um, fall to the wayside because it's America and like, let's just, you know, do what America says. And so, yeah, I don't know. I'm curious to see if with people making noise around the semifinals, like particularly I thought Soren Snotty's post, like, uh, you know, if Roman Krennikov leaves the country, he has to fucking apply to come back in. And there's all sorts of issues with that. Like it's taken him four years to get a visa to go yeah. there. Yeah, I really do wonder if there will be any consideration for things like that. And so I'm curious to see. Me too. 
I think thank you for saying that because I think it's a it's like a, a big it's a huge consideration for anybody outside yeah. of American America and Canadian I mean, maybe I don't know how easy it is for them to get in and out. It's not always that fucking easy to go there. Like it's yeah, mm. it can be a pain in the ass even just dealing with the fucking customs agents when you go there. They can just be horrible people. Yeah. And you and so that that it's your job as well. This is like this isn't yeah. just it's not for fun. No. You are going there because it's part of the process of being a professional yeah. athlete. They should make it easier for you yeah. guys. At least or at least take into consideration all of the other stuff that goes around it. And I was speaking to Lazar Dukic, who had a similar issue with getting, he's Serbian, so getting into the UK mm. is uh, difficult for yeah. him. Those sorts of things, you know. So it's it's, it's very, complicated, it very complicated, delicate situation. I don't, have, I don't have the answers, but I just, I, I, I am curious to say, if there is consideration given to circumstances like that, mm. where it's like, well, okay, I think, hey, just so you know, it's really hard to get to America a lot of the time for people. Mm. I don't think Americans are aware of that, but it is, it's, it's a thing if you're an international athlete. Like even coming from Australia, having been there plenty of times before, we have, Australia has such, you know, basically fucking brown-nosing the Yanks and, and the Brits as well. It's fine coming to Britain, England. But yeah, it's it, like it still can be challenging to get in. And mm. anyway, that's well, not it. long to go until you know if you're going to be in Amsterdam because yeah. that gives you four weeks yeah. more, doesn't it's it? Crazy the difference. I mean, you can even look at just timing of the competitions and whether that makes it. If if multiple regions are competing at different times if we compete in amsterdam we can then have a break and this goes for any europe this isn't just us sorry i'm speaking about mm. europe in general you're the first yeah. week or the last week there is a fundamental difference in the amount of time you then get from the last week to prepare for the games if you qualify versus if you're in Absolutely. That first week and you qualify if you qualify in the first week you can afford to take some downtime you could have a week off and you're still people are still not qualified yet take a week off Build back up into training and be starting to train hard as you need to. If you're if you're not one of those athletes that's almost not guaranteed a spot, but is fairly confident they're gonna get a spot, uh, and you're going in that last week, and you have to put absolutely everything into qualifying on that final week, go tooth and nail, you manage to just scrape in in fifth spot, but you've got four weeks less now to prepare for that competition than people that managed to do that the first week. There's a huge difference in that, and I think that's interesting mm. issue for exploration in the future as well yeah there's a few things that need a <coughs> consideration okay well thanks so much Carl, for no talking to me today. my pleasure and it was so nice to you meet too. you um and good luck hopefully at Lone uh, awesome well hopefully see you at that <laughs> or if not i mean if not i fucking love london i can't i would love to i, I would love to do london it's just the time thing fuck i'd love to compete at strength in depth though it's by mm. all accounts, an incredible competition. Yeah, it's a, it's got a huge history and a, and a lot of tradition behind it as well. They're they're very they're one of the OGs, ah, epic. at least in Europe, definitely. Yeah. Like there's a proper family run. Oh, I love that! I love that event. so much. Yeah, deep, deep, deep volunteer um, sort of field. Like everybody's been doing it for a long time. Epic. All right. Well, so awesome. Me, yeah. Me Either way, it's, it sounds like it's going to be a blast. Thank you, Con. It was really lovely to talk to you. Best of luck for you and your team at Lowlands next week. If you're enjoying the podcast, please like, subscribe and leave us a five-star rating. It all helps. Until next time, thanks for listening and bye-bye. Don't miss the next episode. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Europe is Coming is a programme production and hosted by Vicky McLeod.